Well, friends, it's good to be back with you and worshiping with you and feeling your presence here. I want to tell you that uh, I don't take, and I'm assuming that those with me gathered here do not take these musical uh, offerings for granted. That was even better in person. So you can live vicariously through me uh, and my companions here and be assured that uh, all of our hearts are lifted extra high in this moment. I also want to say thank you to our beautiful youth, wise even though they are young, and the incredible offering of worship that they presented to us just a week ago. If you have not yet seen the service, I encourage you to participate with them as they lead all of us closer to God. Uh, How lucky we are to have them among us. Now, to 1 Peter chapter 2. This can be a nerve-wracking passage to preach. Reading it in its full context reveals that these verses appear to to have been something like a a kind of Bible study for slaves. The the lectionary begins the reading at 1 Peter 2, verse 19, but because I am such a generous pastor, I'm going to back that verse up to verse 18 because it's a little harder. It's a more challenging thing to take into account but let's go ahead with it and see where the Spirit takes us. So the reading for this service begins so beautifully read by Betty Towery, beginning at 19, but if you start at verse 18, it reads thusly, Slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference, not only those who are kind and gentle, but those who are harsh, Now, I confess this to be a challenge to absorb for someone like me who prefers the New Testament voices of those who speak truth to power. Where in this verse from 1 Peter 2 is the passionate voice of John the Baptist who says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Get him, John. Where is the voice of Jesus? inveighing against those who dominate and humiliate. Woe to you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. Next week we'll hear from Stephen, who gets stoned to death for calling his stiff-necked congregation stiff-necked. Rookie mistake. How can Peter follow all this raucous, subversive preaching with Slaves, obey your masters. To say these words have been used wrongly would be the understatement of the millennia or two, especially since the system and legacy of chattel slavery, and they were eventually used to help preserve, is one of the greatest horrors ever perpetuated against human beings by other human beings. Read Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. Read Toni Morrison's Beloved. 
Read Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow or Ta-Nehisi Coates's Between the World and Me. The irony is that the full context of this passage introduces us to one of the most subversive ideas in all of Scripture. Peter is most certainly not encouraging the enslaved, the oppressed, and the suffering peoples of the world to accept their situation, to cheer up a bit, to grin and bear it, to grit their teeth to the bitter end. Rather, he is calling the same to endure for Christ's sake. By doing so, they become like little Christs, little subversive Christs, wherever they are. Their lives become one with the grain of Jesus' own life, death, and resurrection. By enduring their suffering, they join up with Jesus, who did the same. They become one with Christ's passion and therefore participate in the ultimate undoing of sin and death wherever they are. From this perspective of Peter's teaching, we can understand the ancient French bishop, Hilary of Arles. He preached on this very text saying, You will be approved by God if you suffer unjustly, because you know that that is exactly what he did. Peter's way of introducing his line of thought has a way of closing our modern ear. Slaves, obey your masters sounds deeply archaic and offensive, but keep reading. And we hear Peter relaying core elements of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not resist an evildoer, but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Jesus says these things in the Sermon on the Mount. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, says Paul. Even as John the Revelator describes his vision of two evil beasts, one rising from the sea and a second rising from the earth to exercise authority over the whole world. He says, here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. We really are hovering around the very center here, around the veritable nuclear reactor of our faith. Peter's proclamation attends to what makes Christians distinct among all other faiths. Jesus Christ who was very God and very human, puts an end to sin and death by absorbing and vanquishing them in his very person. He does not resort to violence in the Garden of Gethsemane, though a couple of disciples whip out weapons, one a Remington revolver, the other a sawed-off shotgun, to which Jesus replies, guys, (laughs) it's the Roman Empire. What's that going to do? He does not strike back when the high priest strikes him on the cheek. He does not call an army of people or an army of angels to save him, to defend him, to defend the right and the good, and to save him from his fate. He doesn't curse the soldiers, the ones who leave the indelible puncture wounds 
in his forehead and reduce the skin on his back to mush. He does not condemn the enemies or those who scoff at him while he struggles for breath. He becomes the embodiment of the love Paul describes to the Corinthians. He bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Remember that when you have this verse read at your wedding. He takes it all, all the sin and the suffering of the world that can muster into himself and thereby puts an end to it. Jesus exhausts it. He finishes it. You see, it is finished. When I pray for you, dear brothers and sisters, I do consider the unjust sufferings that you endure. I wonder about what you're going through. It's not an interesting thought to me to to consider that some in our congregation may suffer unjustly more than others, for when one suffers among us, all suffer with them. Now I know some of the things that you endure because you entrust your stories to me. Other ministers with whom I work know some of your stories and the burdens you bear, and they hold them in their hearts. I hold what you offer to me in my heart, and I pray for you for strength and patience and endurance. I know that some of you endure very difficult situations in your families and at work. You have been treated unfairly or unjustly, or you've been abused or mistreated, or you've been taken for granted or taken advantage of. You've had to endure humiliations and indignities. I know many more of you suffer things that I or the other ministers don't even know or may never know. And we can only imagine. It could be that this current massive disruption has relieved you of some of these stresses while introducing yet others. Whatever it is you are going through, I pray for you. I pray that you may be able to endure this present darkness in Christ-like ways. I pray that you will come to know and to take heart in these particular words of St. Peter. Still others of us rightly stir and fume over the unjust thing that we see happening to others in our community, in our nation, in the world. It boils the blood to see the already wealthy increasing their wealth by millions or even billions of dollars, while millions of people file for unemployment. A warehouse worker rushes back from her very brief bathroom break to keep grinding fearing for her own health or for the health of her family, while a CEO's net worth skyrockets. A nurse moisturizing the blisters on her face from wearing the same mask day in and day out for long stretches, while others manipulate the market for profit when it comes to purchasing personal protective equipment. 
People ordering Gucci bags and hoarding basic necessities or evicting tenants in times of financial exigency. It's hard to watch as systems and structures originally designed to bring healing and relief and and to give rise to human flourishing corrupted into mere cogs and a great unsympathetic and unrelenting gyre accelerating suffering and hardship. I know. I know. And yet, in spite of all of these humiliations, Peter says, we're free. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins we might live for righteousness by his wounds, by his stripes, you are healed. We're free. Even though we cannot escape the sufferings of this present time, we're free to endure them. We're free to love one another, to pray for one another, to be kind, tender, gentle with one another. Though the moon turn to blood, though the mountains crumble into the sea, we are free, children of God, made able to follow Jesus wherever we may go and wherever we may shelter. These are hard things to understand, but once you catch the idea, you can feel the unraveling of the strains on your heart begin to unfurl. And you can begin to know the good news that by the way of the cross, Jesus has shown the way. And not only that, Jesus has given us the power to endure. How does Jesus give us this power? I believe that one of the ways is by giving us examples in our midst. People who have already discovered this power and who have a kind of magnetism by which they share this power with us. We have many examples among our fellowship of those who have endured long lives of unjust suffering. Maybe not unjust for their whole lives, but pronounced instances that shaped their character and redirected the paths of their lives. If you are a Christian to any degree whatsoever, the longer you live, the greater your chances of being wronged or persecuted for righteousness sake. The senior members among us may not have endured such things in dramatic ways, but then again, many have. But when we younger members get to know our elders, we can hear their stories and the ways that they have endured slights and insults and affronts and snubs and injuries and outrages. And broken hearts. You often have to listen closely, though, because they usually don't go on about them. They don't belabor the valleys of their lives, even though they've earned the right. They tell us their stories without raising their voices or pointing to their wounds. Or if they do point to their wounds, they They do it in unassuming ways so that 
they can invite us to see them, to notice them. I don't know that either one of my grandmothers would have put it this way, but each of them in their own special ways pointed me to their laughter. Each of them had a laugh that continues to echo with me in the older that I've gotten. The more their laughter is healing for me and sustaining energy, power to endure the sufferings that I encounter. I remember my maternal grandmother, I called her Nanny, and learned the stories of her life, the sufferings she endured, oh, how she suffered. A sickly woman who had some bad luck and encounters that I can't imagine, direct encounters with just life. And yet I remember her even in her nursing home bed and her laughter through all of her pain and all of the significant history of suffering that she bore in her body. I remember the way her laugh sounded. It sounded sort of like a, it was one of those smoker laughs. Sounded kind of like an old Chevy trying to turn over. I'm not going to imitate it here because I don't want to uh, contaminate the pulpit. I remember the laughter of my paternal grandmother. I called her grandma. So funny. She had a giggle laugh, kind of like the lady who owned Tweety Bird. If you remember, now I'm showing my age. But I remember the Tweety Bird cartoons. If you haven't seen them, you can find them on YouTube. The little old lady and her giggle laugh. That was my grandma. But oh boy, you did not want to be the subject of her breakfast club at Hardy's several times a week when she gathered with her friends. Indeed, you did not. But I remember watching over time as members of her breakfast club went on to the glory, one by one by one. And the loneliness that I saw my grandmother endure. I remember sitting with her in her living room and hearing her stories, and she would never belabor the stories of loss, but she would slide them in. And they were always interspersed with laughter about still other stories of joy. And I still am in awe of Nanny and Grandma and the way they could laugh through hardship, suffering, memories of injustice, enduring systems and structures that dominated and humiliated them and their friends and their companions and their generation. Whose laughter do you remember? Whose laughter even now sustains you and gives you strength and empowers you to endure this life of travails and trials? I encourage you to look across our congregation in a mystical way. Think of those you have encountered in Bible studies and worship and fellowship those who stand tall among us and know 
of this invitation to think of our fellowship as an old growth forest of leaf bearing crosses with our elders standing as the tallest crosses among us. Their trunks are thick with years and they bear the scars of life and longevity. The forest doesn't live in spite of them, but flourishes because of them, because of the nutrients that they exchange with the soil and the protection from the harshness of the sun they provide with their shade. In their leaves, we find both healing and strength, medicine for the mind and the heart. By tapping the scars in their bark, we receive the sweet sap of their wisdom. In their roots, we find nourishment and sustenance. They stand among us, even though we so often don't see them. They are ready to share with us, even though the older and the taller they become, the more our culture sees them as indispensable. I'm sorry, as dispensable. They long to lean into and over us, to guide and teach us. The tall crosses among us, they are among our most elegant gifts. They are stands of God's grace. Their endurance is integral to our salvation. Do we see them standing among us? Are we ready to listen to the wind of God's Spirit rustling through their leaves of healing? At the end of Scripture, at the end of God's record of revelation, at the end of John's dream of revelation, he sees a tree standing in the midst of the city on each side of the river that runs through it. And he tells us that the leaves that the tree bears are for the healing of the nations. Brothers and sisters, isn't it good news that we have stands, gorgeous, elegant, strong, towering stands of this very same species in our midst even now? I say, God bless them. May they live long, prosper, heal, serve as examples, and endure for our sake and the world's. Amen.